0: Yeah. yeah, my Malak, my, my, my life quake. Tokyo, Tokyo set down. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go. Yo, I'm looking the skyline as I drive my skyline. I'm rocking, baby, Nate, like Neo in 08. Tokyo drifting, what Nakimoto gifted. These dollars don't make sense, no longer on the fence. Bitcoin only, homie. Michael Saylor told me, ain't no second best. No. It's my one and only yeah. fear
1: taking L's. yeah Bitcoin doing well yeah. I'm in Tokyo yeah. at the hey yeah. A- and we are live today I'm here with Jack uh, Zach bombster um, who is the founder of pivotal pivotal pleb um, manufacturer of uh, Loki and Nyord boards uh, which are modular upgrades to make home mining practical and feasible for pleb miners. Um, So I I know this topic is going to be of great interest to our listeners today. Um, Zach, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks. Excited to be here. Great. Um, and so I, I thought, I mean, usually what we do, Zach, is to kick off the show is just give the guests an opportunity to uh, introduce themselves to the listeners, uh, give as much of their background as, as they're comfortable to share. So maybe I can hand it over to you now and you just take us through your, um, uh, you know, your background as, as much as you're you're okay to share with the listeners.
2: Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a small town boy from Idaho, youngest of eight kids. I grew up in a large family. Uh, my passion led me into my passion for electronics led me into uh, a career and really led me to school um, getting a degree in electrical engineering with an emphasis in embedded hardware and embedded systems and uh, that passion then led me to start a career in that field Um, while going to school i was pretty involved in the entrepreneurial scene and was fortunate to be involved in lots of different startups um Some of those startups just cater to small hobbyist communities Uh, Another startup actually was a fire safety device that uh, went on shark tank and is actually quite successful today. Um, But probably the biggest one that most people will know and maybe have heard of is, is a startup that I did called Owlette baby care. We made a little smart sock that uh, goes on a baby's foot and attacks heart rate and oxygen levels. Um, Started out with a couple other buddies in college and, um, we just, we just had this hypothesis that if we could detect heart rate and oxygen levels on a baby, um, we might be able to prevent babies from passing away in their sleep. And so kind of started out with this somewhat naive hypothesis. What one might argue is a, na- a naive hypothesis, at least according to what the literature suggested at the time. And uh, started combining lots of different technologies that were all kind of emergent or slightly post-emergent. So we, we took this incredible technology called Pulse oximetry that had been around since the late 80s, but hadn't really advanced too much since then. And we combined that with um, ultra-miniaturized low-power electronics and Bluetooth radios. I was one of one hardware engineers on the team and one of three firmware engineers that uh, helped to develop our first product. Um, we Over the course of nine years, we raised about $250 million dollars. Um, shipped uh, almost a couple couple million units and and ended up going public and just just had a great run with the company, um, lots of success. Got thousands of stories of how this this device had helped save babies' lives, and it's, all in all it was, it was super rewarding. Um, while while at that company I um, came across Bitcoin but didn't give it the the respect or the attention it deserved uh, just because I was so focused on that startup and. You know, eventually, um, eventually Bitcoin, uh, commanded more and more of my attention. And it got to a point where after I had gone on sabbatical with, or after I left, left the company or gone on sabbatical and extended sabbatical from the company, um, I had an opportunity to really dive into Bitcoin and start to understand what, what Bitcoin is really about. And naturally my, my passion for hardware and embedded systems combined with. This newfound interest in Bitcoin led me to uh, Bitcoin mining and really playing around with with Bitcoin miners. So, yeah, that's a little bit of my background.
1: Thanks, Zach. Lots to dig into there. Um, so, for, firstly, I, one question that came to mind as I was listening to you there is, um, you know, you'd founded that company, at college, um, and I remember myself, my college days um, ma- mainly spent, you know, sort of in a haze, uh, drinking <laughs> and partying and, and and what have you, like like the typical college student. But uh, for you, for you, it sounds like it was a little bit different. You were thinking about starting businesses um while, while you were there and what you well not just thinking but actually doing um is that something you've always had since you were very young could could you maybe talk a little bit about that like you, this urge to, to start something and build a business is, th- is that something kind of innate and um yeah I'd it be fascinated to hear a little bit about that
2: yeah you know as I, as I think about that I I know my co-founder talks a lot about how when he was younger he was always wanting to build businesses I think for me it was slightly different. Um, I know that I always was wanting to create things. So I was always like out in the garage, like trying to you know, make some wooden swords or like build a catapult or something. Like I was always just like tinkering with a nail and a hammer and a saw, like just having this yearn to create things. And I also like this concept of making money. Um, I remember like making homemade suckers and selling them on the school bus on the way to school. And it was just so fascinating that I could, you know, buy ingredients to make these suckers, put a little bit of work into it and make end up with more money. But it's funny because I wouldn't say that I necessarily like had this dream of building companies. So it's more just like, I love to create. And it was fascinating that you could make money by just employing your own you know, your skills and, and, and putting a little bit of work into it. Um, and so I think by the time I got into college that, that started to kind of materialize into what we'd call entrepreneurialism and wanting to start businesses. But as a kid, it was just like, yeah, I'm just having fun building things. Um, so then when I got in when I did get into college I actually did a year of chemical engineering first and I absolutely loved it. Uh, I think the concepts getting into some advanced chemistry concepts getting to the point where chemistry and physics just kind of start to blend into one um, being exposed to uh, quantum physics and all that like I just I loved it. I was on this intellectual high my my freshman year of college and just ecstatic that I had found or that I'd chosen to do chemical engineering. And then something changed. Um, <laughs> Uh, while on while on break between my freshman year and sophomore year, I started to have this entrepreneur more and more of an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial yearning, and I had dabbled around in electronics uh, here and there, um, and was fascinated. Actually, had started doing a bunch of my own projects on the side and was fascinated by it, and started to realize that. There was a lot more entrepreneurial opportunity in electronics than there was, in, or in electrical engineering than there was in chemical engineering. Just to kind of demonstrate that, this thought exercise I remember going through was uh, sitting down and saying, okay, if I wanted to go and start a business in chemical engineering, it's going to take hundreds of millions to, to you know, billions of dollars to go get, like, you got to go build these big chemical plants. It's just a ton of upstart capital uh, to, to do. There just aren't a ton of low startup cost entrepreneurial opportunities in chemical engineering. On the flip side, on electrical engineering, you know, with for for, for four hundred dollars on a weekend of design, you can you can design a circuit board. If you've got a good idea, you can design a circuit board. You can send that circuit board off for fabrication, buy some parts on DigiKey, build them on your on your stove in your college apartment, and uh, and start selling them and making money. And just just to you know, that's that's not hyperbolic. I actually had a friend that started a robotics company that I got involved in, and he literally over a weekend, had an idea for how to build a better, cheaper autopilot um, sensor. And he started building this and selling it to the to the hobbyist community, designed it over the course of a few weekends, uh, spent 400 bucks to get the boards made, and literally built his first several hundred units on his stovetop in his college dorm room and grossed like $400,000 in his first year of selling these autopilot sensors. And so for me i think that's really what seeing that entrepreneurial opportunity that there is in in electrical engineering i think you see, you know you see the same thing in software development as well and it maybe even more so it takes even less startup capital if you have a good idea in software uh, but yeah so that's that's kind of what drew me in
1: yeah well I, when i was as i was listening i was thinking maybe it's not so much of an accident the, the sort of chemical engineering thing too cuz i remember from college the chemical engineers you know, they were typically sort of s- smart people, good at math, um, and, and but also they they had s- somewhat of a uh how how to put it like they they had an awareness of uh you know things like market value because the chemical engineers, if you look, I think I think they get paid at the highest out of the yeah you know you um the choices for engineering. So I, I for several of my friends who were doing a ke- a chemical engineering and they they graduated chemical engineering, but they 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 went on to do entrepreneurial things after that um so so yeah maybe 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 there are no accidents there but yeah i mean what 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 you say about the faster iteration process with like electrical engineering and software etc makes makes a lot of sense um i didn't realize it was quite that <laughs> with electric, with 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 the circuit boards and what what have you it's 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 that um simple i mean i guess simple for you and uh, wouldn't be simple for the people without that specialized knowledge but um is is that i mean do, would you when you go and get get like um create these prototypes are you designing those and then having some factory in China make make them or are you actually able to make circuit boards with, with parts and what have you um, and expertise available in the states
2: yes it just depends on the type of project I'm working on um, but usually I'll start out on your typical breadboard uh, with a little dev kit of some sort you know whether that be uh, an Arduino or or uh, my 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 kind of go-to of choice is the MSP 430 it's a TI microcontroller a little dev kit um, but yeah, I'll, I'll start out with these little dev kits and some breadboards and, and just start, you know, on a whiteboard, start drawing up the idea, drawing up the circuit, getting out my prototyping components and, and I'll start breadboarding and building it. Um, there are some projects, uh, particularly ones that I worked on at Owlet that, that were, uh, that required more than just a breadboard. Um, they were a lot more sophisticated in that case. You know, we had a little PCB mill that we could go and start milling out our own PCBs right there on the spot just for super fast iteration. You know, I could, I could dream of a schematic in the morning, um, draw it up and, and lay it out on a really fast um, prototype board and then mill it overnight and come back the next day. And I had, a I had a circuit board to start testing. Um, Again, those were not for super, I couldn't do super elaborate boards, but if I wanted to test some sub circuit of a bigger system, I could prototype it up there. But then, yeah, once, you know, once you're kind of out of that, Initial prototype phase, it turns into actually doing a, what's known as the Gerber files, doing PCB layout, and um, drawing that up in a in a format, a CAD format that can then be used by the fab houses. Um, whether it's sending it to a, a factory in China or you know here in the states, there's a half a dozen or so reputable, good, quick turn PCB fab houses where I can you know I can send in a design file and have the boards in hand. Um, pretty elaborate, um, sophisticated boards in hand in you know, three to five days. So it just kind of depends on what the project is I'm working on. If it's something <clears throat> fairly easy and doesn't need a lot of, uh, a lot of technical expertise and, um, and I don't need it super fast and yeah, I'll, you know, I'll send it off to some, some, some places in our factories in China. Um, but yeah, if it's, if it's something that's, you know, I need right away and, and it is pretty technical, uh, there's, there's a handful of, Fab houses here
1: in the US that do a good job. Well, it's good to hear. It's good to hear that that expertise is um, are there in the US. Um, I, 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 you mentioned that one of the businesses that you're involved in was on was on Shark Tank. Uh, I'd heard you mention that also on the um, Bitcoin Notable. Podcast. Um, I, I I know I you know obviously we chatted before going live and I know you you didn't um actually appear on the show but were you involved at all in the pre- preparation for that any kind of alpha you can share around the uh, the Shark Tank process because I have to say what when I when I visit the states I always make sure to watch you know if, if, Shark, <laughs> if Shark Tank's on I will watch it it's it, it's absolutely fascinating to me but I w- I just wonder how much of that is 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 real versus entertainment and I don't know if there's any any anecdotes or whatever you could share about that would be maybe interesting.
2: Yeah, so um, the the company that I was involved with that actually went on Shark Tank was named Fire Avert, and they actually didn't get a deal on Shark Tank, but they did get a lot of publicity. Um, I don't know that it necessarily led to a huge breakthrough. At the time, um, the founder, Peter, he was a firefighter here in the town that I live in. Um, he, he was more focused on selling direct to consumer when he went on Shark Tank, and I think it was Uh, I mean, he, he definitely saw a bump in sales and it was, it was a good experience and uh, really helped elevate uh, the business, but in the end it didn't materialize into what they had heard it could. Um, And that's because in the market he was trying to sell to, there were maybe He he was selling, he he had a fire prevention device. It was a device. It's a device that helps um, stop unattended cooking fires, which is the number one cause of home fires in the U S but the problem he was trying to sell direct to consumers and no, no, very few consumers think that that they're going to be the cause of an unattended cooking fire. They think, oh, yeah, that's that's for like, you know, maybe grandma and grandpa that are a little more forgetful, but they don't they don't think that they're going to be the cause of it. And yet they are. Um, but he ended up he ended up shortly after that time on Shark Tank. He ended up um, and it might have been who knows, it might have been because of it, the exposure he got on Shark Tank. But he ended up being able to get in with large property managers, um, namely Marriott being being a big one to where. He's now selling these to apartment complexes that have, you know, a thousand units in a single complex. And they, they just buy them because they can get a better rate on their insurance and they can save the, the entire complex because they don't have one forgetful renter that accidentally burns down a whole unit. Um, so I wasn't super involved in that one. I do know um, with Owlet, we actually had the opportunity to go and, and present and go on to Shark Tank. And we actually decided in the end, no we're we're not going to do this it's it they they kind of what they don't what they don't talk about is when you go present on shark tank and i don't know if they're still doing this but at the time when outlet went through they 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 want a cut of the equity right off the top whether there's a deal or not just just for going and presenting on shark tank they 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 have their own little fees and so with outlet we had gotten a lot of traction and we were excited that we had the opportunity to go present on shark tank but when we looked at the at the pre-deal just to go and present to the sharks we looked at it and said mm, you know what we think that we can we think that we can grow without the the help of shark tank and we we decided to back out um before it was too late and yeah so th- those are my experiences with shark tank it's a fascinating show to watch um
1: yeah yeah it, it is um there's so much of, of american t v is fascinating to me when, <laughs> whenever i'm over there i'm i'm usually stuck in the hotel just watching watching t v and, and <laughs> i think learning so much just um about the society by doing that but um so yeah I, I and and then you mentioned um you know you'd you'd sort of taken a sabbatical um and you'd found bitcoin and so what was it that because you also mentioned you'd had earlier touch points to bitcoin you'd kind of dismissed it. So what was it that you'd seen during that sabbatical that made you change your mind? And then you also mentioned I think you would sort of gone down the rabbit hole there. But what were the kind of materials that you were consuming? Um and and what was the what was the problem that you saw that bitcoin was then solving? Um uh, may, maybe a little bit about uh, your, you know, journey down the rabbit hole would be uh, would be good to discuss at this point.
2: Yeah, sure. Um I think my first exposure to Bitcoin was back in, I wanna say I wanna say it was twenty thirteen. It might have been twenty fourteen.
1: So yeah, let's um so I, I I before that I think I'd I'd asked um you know, just just really to, for you to maybe explain a little bit about the journey down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Um, you know, your earlier touch point when you dismissed Bitcoin, followed by the period during your sabbatical when you discovered it again and then what was it that made you change your mind and and what kind of media were you consuming? You know, um, I think I think Michael Saylor was a big part of it. But but anything, you know, and and, and you know, what what was your particular interest? I guess is as, as I'm trying to ask um, with Bitcoin, what kind of problems did you did you think ah, you know, the light bulb went off, and you think this this could solve this problem? Or uh, any, any insight you could give into your um, your journey down the Bitcoin rabbit hole would be most appreciated.
2: Yeah. So my my first exposure to it was. I had just gotten off a red-eye flight to New York City um, for a board meeting with Owlett. It's one of our earlier board meetings when, when we were still traveling to our investors' boardrooms instead of them coming to ours. Um, and we had just gotten off this red-eye flight to New York. And my co-founder was like, Zach, I sat next to this guy that just talked Bitcoin the entire red-eye flight. And he's probably, you know, this is back in like 2013, 2014. So probably a, a, a Bitcoin OG. And he's like, it's fascinating. Have you ever heard of it? And I hadn't at the time and, and I you know as he started explaining to me what it was, I had two distinct thoughts. One was, I don't have time for this. Um, I was working 100 hours a week um, every week and just did not have the capacity to learn something new. And my second thought, which I think was largely um, was largely propelled by my first thought. But the second thought was this is probably just some government co-opted spying technology to try to you know to try to, to gain control over us. And so I dismissed it up until, you know, fast forward a few years. Um, Bitcoin's probably experiencing some some bull market because there was enough hype to, to break through and kind of get me interested from a speculative, purely speculative kind of casino gambling standpoint. Um, and so I started dabbling around with it here and there. It was probably like 2018, 2019. And I started dabbling. And I remember I, you know, I took a trade and I made like fifteen hundred dollars on it. I was like, oh, cool. That was easy money. And that's that's all Bitcoin was to me at the time. Um, and then fast forward to 2021, you know, COVID had, had kind of had hit. Um, I had this interesting experience with a friend of mine that had said, I I didn't talk to him much, but I knew that he was into Bitcoin and, um, he, he reached out and said, Hey, have you been, have you been, you know, did you happen to invest anything in Bitcoin when it was down? And, um, you know, shortly after COVID when it, when it touched down for a little bit, I just kind of said. I, I remember kind of being proud of myself as I responded. I said, "Nope, I sold all my Bitcoin, and I'm, I'm I, I went all in on stocks, and um, you know, stocks had done pretty well, and Bitcoin was still down, and so I was feeling all good about myself." And then Bitcoin just ripped from there, um, and so that was pretty profound. But up until up until that point, like everything was all just about price action, and number go up, technology, and speculation. Um, it wasn't until I think the aftermath of COVID when we saw the money printing. And I started, I started hearing this concept of, you know, I, I, I'd I'd heard a million times, like most people, how, you know, the the best way to, I've heard, I had heard about the seventh or the eighth wonder of the world, right? As Einstein likes to say, compounding interest, the eighth wonder of the world. And if you just put your money in an index fund or an ETF and you just let it sit there and, you know, spend enough time in the market, like your money will grow and that's how you become wealthy. And so. I had been, you know, diligently saving in my 401k and setting aside money into into different um, index funds and stuff. And then I, around that time when um, you know post COVID and there was all this money being thrown around, I came upon this concept of the M2 money supply and how if you denominate the stock market by the M2 money supply, you see that really you're just treading water. And so, you know, you, you see these examples that that financial advisors love to give about, how, oh, if you just started investing X number of dollars back in the 80s, it would have grown by a bajillion percent to, you know, this much today. But when you denominate that by the M2 money supply, you see that it's pretty flat. Um, and so this this concept, like once I saw that, I couldn't unsee it. And I started to wonder, like, what what do I do with this money that I'm earning? earning? Outlet had um, kind of graduated to the point where it could afford to pay its employees what they deserved. And um, and I was making decent money at the time and looking for a place to save it and feeling like, oh, the index is, index, I can't hold it in cash, index index funds aren't the way to go. And then I came back to this idea of Bitcoin, but now from a more, from from like a, a savings technology, more than a number go up technology. Um, and it was around that time, so Owlet had just recently gone public um, I was fortunate to have a liquidity event when we went public, which means that I got to take some money off the table after putting nine years of my life into it, I got to take some money off the table. And I remember thinking like, you know, this money, a dollar cash, I remember hearing Dalio say cash is trash. And I was thinking, yeah, what am I going to do with this? And so I started, started saying, all right, if, I, if I'm going to invest in Bitcoin, I need to understand what Bitcoin is. Like, Why was it started? Who created it? Um, and, and kind of what are the tenants of Bitcoin? And so um, there, there's nothing to motivate you to learn about something than uh, kind of filling the, the pressure to to uh, need to get into it. With you know, I, Like I said, I, I had, had this liquidity event and felt like my money was just diminishing as the Fed was just printing more and more money. And so it was a great motivator. And so I, I dove in, um, started listening to just started consuming as much as I could um, started listening to a bunch of podcasts, uh, got the Bitcoin standard, read that book. And I think by chapter four or so, I was like, yes, I totally get this. I understand what Bitcoin is now. Um, little did I know I was you know, only at the entryway of the rabbit hole, but I felt like, okay, this makes total sense. I'm 100% bought in. Um, and then I, I listened to the Robert Breedlove, Michael Saylor uh, podcast series, and that just completely cemented it for me. Um, so yeah, those were Those were that's kind of some of the material I got. But the problem I was trying to solve is how do I how do I save my money from being completely devalued um, by the money printer? And uh, I think that that got me 100 percent sold on Bitcoin. But then really what turned me on to wanting to start a business and really get involved. Right, I just come off of this nine year startup life of working 100 hours a week and I was on sabbatical. Uh, I really wasn't looking for the next startup, so to to say. but. when i when i found bitcoin and i came across this this mantra of fix the money fix the world it really helped me to it really it spoke to me and i was like wow i the next startup i do i've got to i've got to get involved in bitcoin i've got to find some way to push um you know just play even if it's just a small part find some way to advance the bitcoin uh hyper bitcoinization
0: if you're a regular listener to the podcast You can support the show and help us grow by listening on Fountain, a podcast app on iOS or Android. You can share your thoughts on this episode or simply say thanks by sending some Sats with a comment called a boost. Getting started is easy. You can top up your Fountain wallet with a bank card or any lightning wallet. You can earn Sats by listening on Fountain and being an active member of the community. Visit Fountain.fm to learn more.
1: so thank thank you for that it sounds very similar to my journey and i and i think many Bitcoiners' journey actually If if i if i could maybe 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 uh try and summarize it um it's like you know oh wow this thing's going up i can get rich Not as you say number go up that gets you in and then you start going down the rabbit hole and you understand things like the m2 money supply as you're saying and you realize it's not about getting rich; it's about preserving your wealth. And then you see so you shift to the saving mindset, and then you start, um, as you say, you start comparing it to other asset classes. And maybe you think, oh, actually, the only kind of allocation that makes sense is, you know, very high percentage of Bitcoin, which, um, because everything else is kind of is, is 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 leaking; it's not preserving value. And you know what you said about index funds; it's all well and good, but then you know, unfortunately, for some reason, the, the IRS doesn't do the same calculations when it comes to M2 money supply and denominating. And so, you know, they, they, they tend to be extracting based on capital gains, which may, may, maybe, maybe aren't actually real in terms of preserving purchasing power. Right. So, so that, so then you're like, okay, well that's all well and good, but this is a 14 year old emergent technology and the world has never seen anything like this before. And by the, by the way, they're, you you know it's a it's a risk to the incumbent system or it's a threat to the incumbent system and they're probably going to come and attack it and then you look into things like executive order 6102 um and you and you look at things like centralization points points of you know single points of failure etc that may be maybe there and so that then drives the I i would say the final stage of the bitcoiner which is the sense of mission and all of a sudden you're thinking, okay, well, how can I get involved to actually make this revolution happen? Um, and because you, you've kind of got skin in the game and, and you know that so much work needs to be done to, um, you, you know, if this thing is going to succeed. And really it's, it's our only chance or, you know, the, the only one I've been able to find. Um, yeah, I, I think there's mm, so one stepping ahead,
2: yeah. stone that once, so there's a great summary, one stepping stone that I think both you and I missed was um, on your, just, just one stepping stone before joining the mission you start to have an understanding of monetary theory and monetary policy and fiscal policy. And you start to, just open your eyes to all the problems that are caused in the world by, and I guess you mentioned the centralization of monetary and fiscal decisions, right? And so then you start to realize, I think that for me, at least, that's really what stirred me to say, okay, it's not enough to just hold Bitcoin. Like we need to advance this mission. Um, We need to kind of fight back against, the centralized powers or the incumbents that have just, you know, granted, we inherited this, this centralized system from, you know, several generations back, but if we're going to go throw off that system, if we're going to go and, um, you know, decentralize it and, and really fix the world, fix the money, fix the world, like we've got to get involved in that mission. And so I think just coming to a knowledge of all the woes that are caused in the world by our current monetary and fiscal policies, I think is, is one important step in this journey to joining the Bitcoin mission.
1: Yeah, agreed. I think for the more high minded, um, you yourself probably one uh, of the more high minded. I mean, for me, like I, I'm a little bit more self centered in that sense. I guess I like it's always for me been about preserving my, myself and my family's wealth, and then that's really driving me to join the mission because I'm I'm thinking I, you know, I'm thinking things like well. Um, if if the if the on and off if the on and off ramps are shut down, which I think I think they should be, uh, or, the, or sorry, they will be at some point. I you know I need some means of, of using this Bitcoin um, for myself and my family, and my you know my friends community, um, and that for for me the, the I, I've been kind of obsessed with circular economy, and that's part of the reason I'm doing this show. Um, you know, we're, we're building up a community here in Tokyo, so we've got regular meetups, and we're doing things like you know. Um, selling items for for satoshis, so that that's been that's been my drive. Like you say, though, for for more mission driven people who are like try, try, want want to fix the world, it's all. Um, and, and and then I mean, you, you've you've had a kind of um, uh, a, a background there, right? I mean, you, you've built companies or helped build companies that literally saved lives of of babies, etc. So for for people who are motivated by a kind of mission to improve the the, you know, the, the world, um, Bitcoin's also something, yeah, exactly. As you say, um, that's going to inspire people and, and have, and, and, and move them to do, to do these things. And, and I, 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 I don't, I don't even remember, I mean, one of the things, so I like, obviously I look at Bitcoin and I, and I'm kind of hard. I think, I think many people share this, this feeling, right. Where you're half excited, but you're half dreading things because you know all the all the ways it could go wrong um and but but one of the things that really gives me in, inspiration encouragement with bitcoin is it's the passion of of bitcoiners um you know sailors kind of mentioned this when he talks about the cyber hornets and what have you but i i always remember that scene from i think it was in godfather when um michael Cor- corleone goes down to i think it was cuba or somewhere and i don't know if you i don't know if you've seen the movie or what remember the scene but he uh, one of the rebels. They were, they, they, the government there was having problems with rebels, um, and Corleone witnesses a scene where one of the rebels sort of does a suicide attack, uh, j- jumps in, a, I think it was a cab or something, and blows it up with the security forces inside. And 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 then later on, there's another scene where Corleone's talking to the uh, you know the political, um, I think it was like the mayor of the town or or some someone like that, someone someone re- representing the establishment. And Corleone said, you know, I, I decided not to kind of invest down here because you know I've, I've seen that you know the rebels um you know the security forces are paid right. to do their job it's just nine to five for them but the rebels they're not, they're not getting paid anything and yet they're willing to give their lives for this and so i think i think they could succeed right um it, it turns out you know that that actually that actually happens that actually plays out as as Collier only predicted but so so one one key insight the court that he had uh, is is to understand that that, that passion that zeal is something that probably you you know you can't overcome um and i feel i feel like in bitcoin we have that um I, you know it's not everybody but there's a significant number of people who are talented motivated and um, but this, they're passionate to the point even with some that they probably would risk everything for the success of bitcoin so that 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 gives me a lot of hope but uh yeah, I that's my, my white white pill of the day. But any any thoughts on that?
2: No, I think I think you're right. That passion, and just to be clear, that passion and zeal doesn't lead us to. And you didn't suggest this, but just to be clear, that passion and zeal doesn't lead us to to jump into cars, blow them up, right? Or, or to 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 take acts of violence. The beautiful <laughs> we have thing the, here, yeah.
1: we have the passion yes. and zeal,
2: but we also thank, have the plan for, for a peace. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, and like I said, you didn't mention that, but but the beautiful thing here is we have that passion and zeal, and we have a way for a forward for a peaceful revolution, which is just all the more empowering, right? Because like we've got the passion and seal, and now we can get even more people to join in when they know, like, yeah, there's a peaceful way to resolve the, you know, the, the predicament that we're in. Come join the peaceful revolution. And I, I love that about Bitcoin so much. Um, you know, there's, it, it is, a, it's a totally white-pilling moment when you see the passion in the space. Um, the one thing I will say when I, when I got into this space, um, you know, as, as a newcomer into the space, my perception was that the space was a lot bigger than it is. Um, and then I, you know, I launched this business. I started um, started getting to know the community a lot better and was quite surprised to learn just how small the community is. And it's it's great. It's fantastic that we have as much um, Bitcoin is as big as it is with such a small community. Um, but I think there's also and, and it's fun to be this early. Um, but we also need to re- we need to recruit a lot more people to come and join the mission if we're if we're really going to you know, to advance this thing forward.
1: Yeah, I think that is the key, and I know you. So I um, watch you on the Bitcoin Audible podcast, and you have a mission of, I believe, a million um, home miners within five years. I think it was, or something like that. And I think to do that, you need to target people who don't yet own Bitcoin. I think you yeah, call them pre-coiners, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, my, my big goal is I want to heat 1 million homes in North America with Bitcoin miners in five years. Um, and I think that, I think if we do that, it's been my experience that Bitcoin mining is a fantastic way to Trojan horse. Well, I guess, let me back up. In order to get into a million homes, we've got to break into what I call the pre-coiner market, right? There are, there are, there are lots of pleb miners, not anywhere near the scale that we need to really go. And as as some call it, Corey Clipson from Swan calls it the intransigent minority, right? We need to get to 10 million Bitcoiners to really secure the Bitcoin future. And while there are, you know, there's, it, it can seem like there are a lot of plug miners, we're, we're nowhere near that scale um, or, or nowhere near that scale of, of like passionate Bitcoiners. And so um, my goal here is to is twofold. One is to hyper-decentralize the hash, the hash power, So it's not centralized in a a handful of corporate publicly traded miners, um, but also to Orange Pill as as many people as possible, and and convert pre-coiners into bitcoiners. And so, the way that I see, you know, accomplishing both of those goals is by heating a million homes with Bitcoin miners. Um, When when you do that, you know, if you're heating a million homes and you're generating revenue and and savings for these pre-coiner families, you know, they're going to naturally start to get curious. And it's been my experience that mining Bitcoin is a great introduction. If you have to dumb it down, you can't jump right into all of the technicals of mining. But when you can place a heater in somebody's home and that heater starts generating cash for them, you know, we we start off paying them in U.S. dollars. And then in time, we introduce them to the idea of Bitcoin and they just start to get interested and curious. And so the goal here is, you know, if we get in a million homes, um, we we convert a large percentage of that and and convert hundreds of thousands of of pre-coiners into Bitcoiners.
1: I, I guess it's a similar strategy to the Noster, um strategy in that, you know, I've, and I've heard this articulated by the likes of Odell, Matt, Matt Odell, if you know him, um, and their 1031 funds, I know they've been very proactive in kind of in, investing in, for example, Primal and, and Nostra startups. And I've and I've heard some criticism from other Bitcoiners about this. It's like they think, oh well, is a distraction. Um and, and they don't they don't quite understand it. But for me, I, I look at Nostra and I think, well, actually, you know, the the Odell thesis, if uh, if I, if I do, do it justice, is that most people will get their first experience with Bitcoin through something like Noster and they won't necessarily even know it's it's Bitcoin when they first get involved, but they will put content out there and they'll get zapped a certain number of sats and all of a sudden you've, you've converted a pre-coiner into someone who has skin in the game mm-hmm. um, and it's a very easy way for people to get involved it's a fun way for people to get involved it's a completely different approach to oh you know you need to you should sign up to an exchange and buy bitcoin which is just inherently speculative and you know it has that image of risk and um high volatility etc but if you if you're just making this friendly and approachable and it's kind of like um and also, it's it's not, I mean, Bitcoin's not the main thing, right? So, for example, with Nostra, it's it's a social experience. And then you just happen to have this kind of circular economy of zapping Satoshi's back and forth if, if you so choose to get involved. You know, with mining, it seems like, you know, your your idea with home mining is, you know, people would just be, I think you mentioned it on, on Guy's show, but, you know, if, if, for example, you're using propane to heat your your home, you could potentially just install these um Bitcoin miners, and just just as a money saving play, uh, and just to upgrade your heating in- infrastructure within your home, and then you know the satoshis are just kind of the cherry on the cake. It, it's not it's not the main thrust of the sale. Um, and so, I would would you agree? It's kind of like that. That is, is it similar to the Noster kind of Trojan horse approach in that way? And or any any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, it, it is absolutely similar. Um, you know, a little bit of market research that we've done uh my, so my co-founder is a fifth generational rancher in montana and he went and made a list of like 70 some odd ranching buddies that he knew that he thought oh, i'm gonna go you know i'm gonna go try to place uh some miners in their homes and on their farms or on their ranches to try to heat different buildings and as he started talking to uh these rancher buddies you know rural folk not a lot of exposure but they'd heard about bitcoin and he starts talking to them and they were following along and excited about the opportunity until he mentioned Bitcoin. Um, and that's, you know, unfortunately that's just, that's because of mainstream media or because of the different FUD cycles that have happened. Like that's where a lot of people, that's where a lot of pre-coiners are, right? Bitcoin, unfortunately is still a gimmicky scammy high risk thing. Um, and so he, he changed his pitch and, you know, went out and started working It kept working his way down the list. And after he changed his pitch to where he didn't even have to mention Bitcoin, um, people were excited. And then what ends up happening is we, you know, we put these miners in the homes and, um, I guess I haven't done a, I haven't done a full background or given the full context on the business model that we're doing, but I guess high level is we're identifying areas with, of energy, energy arbitrage opportunities. So in, in America, most rural homes are heated with either propane or heating fuel. And that's a very expensive heating source because the, the fuel has to be trucked out usually in the summertime, it has to be trucked out to the home and then stored in large tanks. Um, and 20 years ago, when these homes were built, the price of propane and the price of electricity were about cost parity for heating a home. But since the shale gas boom here in the U.S., where um, the t- fracking technology allowed us to unlock a ton, of, a glut of, um, of natural gas, known as, known as shale gas, um, it's caused the price of electricity to stay relatively flat while the cost of propane has continued to, to rise. And so now, you know, fast forward 20 years from when the homes were built, you no longer have cost parity between heating with electricity and heating with propane. But a lot of people don't realize it. A lot of people don't realize that they can save hundreds of dollars a month just by switching from electricity or from propane to electricity. And this isn't, this isn't the case in every jurisdiction or every area in the U.S. It's highly dependent on local markets. Um, but what I've been able to do is identify areas where there there are um, energy arbitrage opportunities where the price of propane is high and the price the local price of electricity is low, and so these customers can save a few hundred dollars a month. So now when we go when we go knock on a complete stranger's door, um, we're not selling them anything, and we can just you know we we don't have to we don't we don't pitch them on Bitcoin. We just say, you know, we're uh, if you're willing to host a piece of my distributed network in your home we can save you a couple hundred dollars a month on heating. And just that, being able to save money um, for them, is, is, is enough to, for them to be like, yep, I get it. Um, then, you know, a, a lot of people, that's enough. But we want to we want to take it a step further and we want to eventually get them uh, bought into Bitcoin. And so we, not only do we, you know, we could just say, yep, you, you host the miner and you'll save the money and that'll be enough. But we're finding that we actually... We want to give them a small percentage of the Satoshis that we mine so that they can start to kind of get that little dopamine every month when they get a statement or an email saying how much they've earned by hosting Mm. a part of our, you know, not only how much they saved, but how much they earned on top of it for hosting a piece of the network. And then the idea is once we've got them opening those emails, we can now create a a drip campaign uh, to, to, to borrow a marketing term we can create an educational drip campaign that slowly introduces them to this idea of Bitcoin. Right now they they get in the habit of getting that dopamine hit every time they open the email to see how much they earned. Um, and then, you know, as they progress on this educational drip campaign journey, we get to a point where we we make the switch from dollars to Bitcoin and start introducing them to like, Hey, here's how we are actually able to make money and here's what it means for you.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, um, that, I mean, well, we say it a lot in Bitcoin, but it's all about incentives, right? And so, yeah. and that's kind of a no-brainer. It's like, look, you can save money, and by the way, you get this drip of Satoshi's monthly. I mean, it sounds. It's. I mean, it's something that you would expect to be somewhat of a flywheel, right? To sort of sell itself. I mean, and not not to belittle all, all the work I know you're going to have to do to to make it happen. And I, I used to do a job um, when I was at college. I had to phone people up, and um, it was sort of. We were contracted on behalf of the phone. One of the yeah, it was it was when we were going through deregulation in the in the UK, and so that was um, we were phoning people up and just asking them to change their phone providers, and you know it was guaranteed that they would save money, and all they had to do was put a box or something on their phone line, and still you know you get you're getting rejected ninety percent of the time <laughs> even though all, all people have to do is, is 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 install a box and they'll they'll guarantee they're guaranteed to save money but but you but you know it's it's the it's the ten percent you go for right um, but um so I, I I have some ideas when it comes to Bitcoin mining and I think I think Bitcoin is doomed. It will fail um, unless one of two scenarios play out um And the first scenario is something that you know, kind of, it's kind of a geopolitical thing, and it's the classic kind of game theory idea that what we should see eventually is kind of competition for hash rate um, between, for example, you know, the U.S. and China, where the U.S. and China would compete for for hash rate at a nation level, a nation-state level, and that the hope would be that the enemies of China you know would would be would would have their transactions their spending would be censored by the chinese miners and that would be mandated by the chinese government um, but the us would have no such you know problems uh, validating those transactions sorry i shouldn't use valid, validate um, including those transactions in a block <laughs> And vice versa, right? And so the, the, the idea is that, um, okay, you may have to pay more for a, to get included in a block, to incentivize a miner to include you, um, but you should be able to avoid censorship um, in, in the Bitcoin network because ultimately, you know, the hash rates kind of, um, it's, it's non, I guess it's politically non-correlated or so there's some kind of idea like that. And I, to be honest, like lately have been thinking more and more, that's probably not feasible or in it it, it it certainly isn't a guarantee and, and i look at things like for example it seems that, chi- that china in the u.s is, is sort of getting more more pally now at least the, the sort of democratic the democrat regime i know has been making efforts to uh reach out to china a little bit i know xi jinping was in uh california Little earlier this month or last month, um, and it seems that when it's mutually convenient for both the you know CCP and, and the Washington regime to cooperate, they will cooperate. And so, you know, it's not it's not a guarantee that we're going to see this kind of magical um, uh, game theory just just preserving the sensor resistance of the Bitcoin network. It's not not at all. Now, this so the second scenario I've been thinking about is well, if you had a significant, you know. D- decentralized aspect to mining which you know would come from things like uh small pleb miners for example but in sufficient numbers like you said like if it was a million homes um then that's more interesting potentially because you know uh again i mean there's a lot of dynamics here because these these people aren't hashing um, independently they're, 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 they're hashing via a pool and that you know how, how much is that pool censored or could be shut down by the government etc cetera, etc cetera. but at least if if you know if you do have that those incentives of people who have mining incorporated into things like heating devices within homes new buildings uh, pool heaters etc then you kind of have an army of hashing out out there which is which is a lot more it's a, it's a lot harder to corral and sort of you know, control and sensor etc and so that 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 is that is the second scenario i think where bitcoin could survive because uh, because i have to say i like for me the the only the the only value prop for bitcoin really i mean i guess there's two there's the there's the there's the fact that it can't be debased unilaterally by any any anybody you know the, the monetary supply is set in stone mm-hmm. or in code um and this but the second is really the censorship resistant and for me you know, any, either of those two pillars get knocked out, and and Bitcoin's just worthless. I just, I, you know, if, I would just sell it. I would just sell it all. If, if if if, you know, if if there was censorship and things on the network, it's just it's just a waste of time, to me. Um, and so you know, I, I really think what you're doing for that for that reason is 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 incredibly important. But, do, I mean, do you do you have any thoughts? Like, is is this is this what's driving you? Um. With, with, with the business? And also, do, like, if so, like, do, do you agree that this is one potential way to preserve sense resistance in Bitcoin? And if so, like, is, is a million homes enough? Um, any, any thoughts about uh, that would be most appreciated?
2: Yeah, uh, lots of thoughts. Here. I'm going to try to keep them all organized and presented in a coherent way. Um, so the answer to, to both of your questions, I guess there were three there at the end. Um, the answer to the first two is yes, absolutely. It's a part of the motivation for me doing it. I do believe that it's a risk, but one that can be overcome with a hyper-decentralized hash rate. And, um, and then I'll I'll maybe get into your question about near the end, I'll get into your question about how much is a million homes enough. Um, real quick, winding, rewinding to your first concern about, you know, nation states competing in that game theory. You know, I think this last month has been pretty fascinating to see, you know, you touched on pools a little bit, um, pools are this underlying fabric where nation state is only one dimension and pools are another dimension, right? So we have, we have, and pools kind of, um, I wouldn't say supersede, but um, I guess they they don't necessarily fall under um, nation state jurisdictions or or I guess follow nation state um, boundaries, right? And so what do I mean by that? Well, if you look, F2 pool is a Chinese pool, predominantly Chinese pool, With a lot of American hash power pointed at it, Um, F2 pool is not headquartered in the U.S. However, they are following OFAC, that they're censoring OFAC non-OFAC compliant transactions. And so um, as you think about this nation-state game theory, you also have to consider the pools. And uh, I think that just kind of highlights the need for lots of pools and um, finding a way to to hyper-decentralize pools. Um, and that actually, so that leads me to the the second thing, and hyper decentralizing hash rate. I think there's actually two two aspects to hyper decentralization that we need in mining, and one is distributing the hash rate into a lot of micro micro sites that are distributed both geographically and legal entity wise, and I I'll dive into that a little in a little bit. So that there's one area that we need to hyper decentralize, and that's the hash rate. The second area we need to decentralize is the pools. Um, there's, there's some exciting work going on in the space and, and hyper-decentralizing pools. There's a lot of uh, new solo mining pools that are coming up. There's um, Ocean that just came out. There's Stratum V2 that has the ability to for miners to create their own blocks. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited to see the progress being made on the pool side. Um, and I think that we'll get there eventually. I feel like there needs to be more attention, or at least I feel like I need to, to, to focus my attention on Hyper decentralizing and distributing the hash rate. And, and part of the reason for that is when I was at Outlet, um, we had a, a run-in with a regulatory body, the, the FDA here in the United States. So Owlett used uh, the technology called pulse oximetry. Um, it's it's a it's an interesting technology because it is in some instances it's considered medical medical device technology, in other instances there are over-the-counter consumer products that use pulse oximetry, and it's not considered a medical device. And so when Owlet got into the business of making the pulse oximeter, uh, you know, a couple years into the business, we, we, we actually applied for a medical device um, clearance with our product, and it got rejected immediately by the FDA. And we jumped on the phone and to understand why it was rejected, and the director of the FDA at the time uh, told us it was rejected because, in his views, it wasn't a medical device, didn't need medical device clearance. And we asked him, you know, can we get that in writing? And he uh, didn't want to give us it in writing, but he said, you can, you can take minutes of this call. I'll sign the minutes, and uh, you know, and and we can go from there. So we did that. We took meeting, you know, meeting minutes of the meeting. We said, you know, Bakul Patel doesn't think that this is a a medical device, and we went, we moved ahead with the business. And um, six years fast forward, six years, we'd we'd had several touch points with the FDA here and there. But fast forward six years and they blindside us. We've since gone public, um, we had shipped, you know, a million and a half units and the FDA blindsides us out of nowhere and just unilaterally shuts us down overnight in an instant. And we were completely powerless. We had no recourse to go back and say, well, wait a minute. We have this these signed minutes here by your former director of the FDA and we have all this history with the FDA of it not being a medical device. And now you're telling us it's a medical device. Uh, and they shut us down overnight. Um there was nothing that we could do. I, I mean, eventually fast forward now two years beyond that point. and you know it costs us about a hundred million dollars worth of bureaucratic work and uh, going back and forth with the FDA uh, and it cost us two years, but we were able to get our product back on the market. But when I was discovering Bitcoin, I was coming fresh off of this experience with the FDA where they just came in and shut us down. and we weren't we, we weren't a small we weren't just this tiny company with with no Power to, to push around like we, you know, we had just gone public at a 1.4 billion dollar valuation. We had both of our state senators and several of our representatives that were willing to go to bat for us um, to try to, to try to persuade the FDA to back down, and, and none of it none of it worked. And so, coming fresh off of this experience, um, I realized, you know, at that time there was all this fud around how Bitcoin was going to boil the oceans, and I just I looked at the mining space and thought. Wow, there's so much concentration in these large public miners, these single legal entities that the government can now just go in and shut down, just like they did Outlet, in the name of, you know, regulation. And um, and I, I recognize that as a huge vulnerability. And so that's that's really what kicked off um, this idea of like, okay, we've really got to change the trajectory of the more and more centralized mining. We're, we're currently on this path or this trajectory where mining is becoming more centralized we have to do something to change that trajectory. Um, you know, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't, you don't have to look very hard to figure out what's caused us to be more and more centralized. Um, and, and you realize that we've really got a fight on our hands to try to hyper decentralize the hash rate. And the, the only way that I know how to do that is by harnessing club miner passion and free market forces and figuring out a way to break into the pre-coiner market um, with, with a business model and business
1: plan that will essentially allow us to harness those free market forces and and get these in millions of homes. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I to to add to that, I think yeah, there's the foot about boiling the oceans, and and I think the uh, that that's kind of a distraction. I see that as a bit of a red herring. I think the real play, is, uh, you know, there's been noise made by the U.S. Treasury recently, you know, in 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 combination with the New York Times, you know, New York Times sort of set up the alley-oop with the story about Hamas, the the fake news actually. Um, Yeah. Um, And now that's given the the Treasury Department the sort of excuse they need to say, okay, well, we need, you know, we need to apply the Bank Secrecy Act to anyone involved in you know, Bitcoin transactions, so whether that be miners or, you know, if you're running a lightning node, et cetera, I think that's ultimately the play for them. I, I look at things like the BlackRock ETF and, you know, it just, and it just seems as well, that's kind of, it's a coordinated thing because what they want to do is corral and push people into just owning paper. Right. It was, I mean, it, which, which, you know, I mean, this is the time, this is since time immemorial, right? The, um, the government wants you to hold pieces of paper and they want all of the, assets under their control so th- this this has to be the ultimate um play for them um so i so i think that the work you're doing is is incredibly important i mean so there's getting the hash rate out, I, th- I think and i think there's two there's two ways to fight back against the like, government overreach and i think in bitcoin we see both communities now re- w- fairly well represented and you've, you've sort of got the original cypherpunk movement which is like we you know we have to take advantage you know the government is such a a monster that you know you have to it's you have to kind of find asymmetric ways to fight and encryption is one way you can do that and obviously by its very nature it's a it's an asymmetric sort of algorithm um and and we kind of we kind of you know the government can't sort of hit what it can't see kind of uh strategy on, on the on the other hand you know in bitcoin you've got and especially since sailor came in and did his thing with MicroStrategy, you've got this more Um, people who think that, you know, really what we need to do is, is, is we need to adopt Bitcoin in these legitimate ways that it help you know, American citizens, um, American business to thrive and you sort of embed it in society in a way that it makes it very difficult for the government to kind of come and screw with later. And it seems you're more on that kind of, you know, that, that, that side of things. And I think, you know, I think, I think we need both when it comes to, to combating, um, Government overreach, but and you, you also mentioned Corey uh, of of Swan uh, a little earlier in the uh, interview, and I think he's he's all also of that mind, right? That it's it's more about you know what what what's essential to Bitcoin survival is less you know the the passion and the zeal of the of the Maxis, which we we spoke about a little earlier, is is is, is of course essential, the Cyber Hornet sort of idea, but uh, uh, at the same time you have to get numbers, you have to get significant numbers of precoiners to to be bought in. Uh, to, to 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 sort of build that defense, if you like, right? If if enough people have skin in the game and own Bitcoin and sort of have positive thoughts towards it, it makes it a lot more difficult for the government to screw with. Um, but at, but at the same time, like guys like Corey do get criticized by the quote unquote cyber hornets for kind of yeah. selling out. Or do, I mean, do do you do, do you also have you had that kind of criticism, or do you no, anticipate I, that kind of criticism?
2: I, I I haven't had it. I probably should anticipate it. But here here's how I see it. Um, you know, I one like first off those two ideas. I don't think have to be mutually exclusive. Um, I think that you absolutely need this foundation of cyber hornets with the with the cyber cyberpunk passion. Um, and the idea here is that you know the way I see it is governments have unfortunately the last since COVID we've seen that governments have like we've been a, a, the majority of the population has fallen asleep at the wheel and have completely. Surrendered many of their freedoms, their digital privacy to governments. Right. And so um, governments are going to continue to exercise their invasion of privacy. Um, and like you need, you need the punks to be pushing back and saying, no, like, you know, we, we're going to develop this technology and, and be passionate about it. But I don't think that that will be enough to stop the government's insatiable appetite for more and more intrusion into privacy and more and more control. I think that the, so I think while you absolutely need the technology and you need the ability to to be able to push back on the government I don't know that a small band is enough to completely um stand up against the government and the the the, the big brother nation state um when you know when they have that big appetite but I think the best way to counter that appetite is to make it politically expensive for them right um when Going back to my example with Owlet, you know when we, when when Owlet when when the device was deemed a medical device and could no longer be sold, the the regulators didn't go after every Owlet parent and say, hey, you you have an adulterated they called it an adulterated device. They didn't go after each parent and say, you have an adulterated device, you have to turn it back in because it's an unregulated device that's out in the wild and it's not safe, right? They didn't do that. They went straight to the one legal entity and they shut us down because it's politically easy for them to do that. It's extremely it's, it's extremely hard for them to go out and, you know, one by one to our million plus customers that have grown to love and rely on this device. It's really politically expensive for them to go. out, And, you know, even when they shut us down, there was a, there was a political uproar. We got several 500000 signatures or so um, on a petition to, to, sent to the FDA to reverse their they're standing, but um, so it was, it was a little bit politically expensive, but it, it was a lot easier for them to go straight to the centralized entity. Um, so getting back to this, you know, these two different approaches to Bitcoin, I, I see it as layers. I see that we absolutely need you know, the cypherpunk um, technology and passion there and the cyber hornet p- the passion. Um, but then I think we also, in order to combat the government's insatiable appetite for invasion of privacy and control, we need to combat that with strength in numbers, lots and lots of people that have the ability to uh, make make governments pay politically. And and I would say at the same time, um, large numbers. If we just had people, large numbers of people holding Bitcoin and ETF, like that's not going to be enough either. Like I feel like while the two approaches aren't mutually exclusive, I don't know that one can stand on its own in a meaningful meaningful way without the other. And it's not to say that. That neither of them are valuable. It's to say that they're both most valuable when combined together. If that makes sense,
1: yeah, it does. Um, it does make sense, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in in agreement with you on on those points. Um, so just just to um, maybe bring it back to you know more more concretely speaking, what what your business is doing in terms of the uh, the hardware, um, we you know we can we can maybe dig into that a little bit because I, I first got into home mining. Um, you know, a couple of years ago and I'd, I'd been influenced by, I don't know if you've ever seen, I think um, his name's Diverda, no KYC. And there's a guy called Econ Alchemist. I may, I may be butchering their names, but um, Econ Alchemist had put out a home mining guide um, on his website and, and he, he went through, you know, um, just, just just, just, all, all, all those sort of things you need to do to, to get it set up, right? So in terms of, you, you know, maybe you need to upgrade to get a 200 volt or in the US, yeah. 220 volt power supply. You know, maybe you need to uh, build sound enclosures and, you know, maybe you need to Get into ducting and stuff yep. like that, and and I I'd actually done that. My I used S nine, so I could just use a hundred volt power supply. But I had to like work out how to install, um, you know, f- Fantex fans, things like that, just to, yeah. to to lower the you know. And I had to use cooler boxes to kind of uh, dampen the sound, etc. And it was it was a bit of a. And I'm not I'm not I'm, I'm a software guy more than I'm a hardware guy, and mm. so for me it was a it was a learning experience. It was enjoyable, but you know, it's just impossible to think that the average no coiner, pre-coiner, et cetera, is going to go through all that to set up um, you know, mining in the home. It just, just wouldn't just isn't gonna happen, right? So, um, you know, I'm I'm more of a cyber hornet than I am, right? The 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 the, yeah. the 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 target market here for you. But I know that you're doing a lot of work to make it make the barriers <laughs> a lot lower to for I guess for manufacturers to create these devices that would ultimately end up in um People's homes, but could you could you maybe talk a little bit about the Loki board and the other products that you have are uh, for sale and and, and could have sort of how, how what what problems they're solving etc cetera, etc. Cetera? Um, yeah, you bet. Be good. Thank you.
2: Yeah, so when I when I started getting into the mining space, I you know came across the same kind of guides that you're talking about. I came across the Plub miner community and was first off just blown away by the passion. Like the the things that these people were willing to do to their homes, uh, risking their their life and limb, punching holes in their walls. Like it was it was incredible to see. Um, and I was determined to get my own hash rate set of my own home. And my house only has a single 220 volt plug behind the dryer. And, you know, I I evaluated going the S9 route and I was like, I just didn't get me that excited because, you know, that's how many generations removed from state of the art technology. And while they still produce hash rate, I just felt like if we're going to enable, if we're really going to meaningfully hyper-decentralize the hash rate, like we needed to have more competitive oper- or technology. And so I was determined to deploy an S-19 in my house. Um, so I was just about ready to, you know, I'm an electrical engineer. So it's like, hey, I, I can go and run my own 220 volt outlet. No problem. So I was just about ready to do this when the entrepreneur in me said, wait, hold a minute, wait, wait a minute. Uh, well, there are likely millions of other people that are going through the same problem you're going through but they don't have the same skill set you have to be able to go and solve that problem. So, you know, my entrepreneurial experiences have taught me that where there's a problem to be solved, there's an opportunity. And so I got thinking, okay, there's no way that if we're going to get into a million, a million homes, a coiner homes, there's no way that I'm going to be able to knock on someone's door and say, Hey, if you let me punch a hole in your wall or run it, you know, if if you, if you let me get an electrician out here and strap you with a thousand dollar bill to have this, Wire run through your home, then we can start hosting it. Like it was just going to be a non starter, right? And you had people that were going into the air ducts or the HVAC system. You had, you had all these different creative, very passionate approaches that I just didn't think scaled to the pre-coiner market. And so I said, all right, well, if, if we're going to scale to the pre-coiner market, what has to happen? First, these things have to be plug and play simple. Like they, we can't be punching holes in people's walls, we can't be routing it, you know, cutting into their water heater. Um, they have to be plug and play simple. Um, and then second, they have to be non-intrusive. The, 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 the pre-coiner, we can't expect the pre-coiner to significantly change their lifestyle or to tolerate these intrusive miners, these intrusive industrial miners. And then third, um, the unit economics have to work out. So backing up to the plug and play simple, well, you know, if we want modern miners with modern hash rate, modern modern efficiencies, um, they've got to be able to run off 120 volts. And so that's where I first started. I thought, well, these miners, you know, they, they want 240 volts. These S19s want 240 volts, but really the hash boards want between 12 and 15 volts. So shouldn't I be able to hash if I can offer it 12 to 15 volts and it's a, and a sufficient current? Shouldn't I be able to hash? And so I started tinkering around and that's that's when, when the idea of the Loki board was born. So what the Loki board does is it tricks the miner into hashing from any suitable DC power supply. Now, there's, there's some caveats to that. You can't power a full S19 unit from a 120-volt outlet, uh, a standard 120-volt outlet. You'll burn it up. It just requires too much current. Um, but you can remove a hash board or two and now start to power a single hashboard board miner um, or a double hash board miner from a hundred, standard 120-volt outlet. Or alternatively, another popular thing to do with the Loki board is you'll have people that have their own solar uh, panels or or um, energy sovereignty systems right where they where they're generating their own dc voltage and it doesn't make sense for them to go from dc through an inverter to ac only to go back to dc through the through the power supply right and so they can actually gain a lot of efficiencies if they can just go dc straight to asic and so that's where the loki board comes in again it just it allows um s19 mining rigs to hash from any suitable dc power supply Um, and that that when I realized that in order to break into the pre-coiner market, we needed to, we needed to be plug and play simple. That's when the Loki board idea was born. Um, when I went and I went and created that technology originally for the business I'm building to go and distribute these, these miners to, or these heaters into pre-coiner homes. But I thought, hey, why not make this available to everybody else too? Um, that, you know, wants to go and put modern miners, run modern miners off of their, their, their outlets in their homes. And so, um, I spun it out and made it available, um, on a, on a website. You can go buy a Loki, a Loki board and, you know, for 20 bucks and a, and a little bit of tinkering, um, you can convert a, an S19 into a machine that you can run off your 100 volt, 120 volt outlets. Um, the, the second problem to be solved was non-intrusive. And for me, the, the primary thing there is that these, these off-the-shelf miners, you know, they weren't designed to be run in homes. They were designed to be run in large industrial data centers. And so they're really loud. And the idea that you mentioned, you know, you had to put yours in, in a cooler, or found some sort of sound mm. dampening shroud. Um, and when I'd come into the space, I'd seen a lot of people were using these AC Infinity fans. Were, AC Infinity is a company that makes a fan that's actually really popular in the marijuana industry for people that were growing marijuana in their house. And so Bitcoiners came along and saw this techno, this fan that had been perfected for high volume of air at high back pressure or high static pressure but low low volume or low noise levels. And um, so Bitcoiners kind of borrowed that fan from the marijuana industry and started coupling it on their miners. And the problem was that the AC infinity fan, um, the, the fan speed controller doesn't speak the same language as the the miner's speed fan speed controller. And so um, I created this board called the New York board that allows the miner to control the speed of these AC infinity fans. When you when you run an AC infinity fan with a an s19 it significantly lowers the the noise levels and so again another technology that I identified that we would need in order to scale into pre-coiner homes and one that I felt like I wanted to get out to the world just so people could start playing with it and and uh, moving forward with this technology and seeing what other kind of opportunities they could unlock and what other kind of build configurations they could unlock so right now those are the those are the two products that are available on my my pivotal pleb website um but they're really there you know that the idea here isn't to to go out and sell these and make a bunch of money off of selling these. The idea is that this is the technology the enabling
1: technology that I'll need
2: to eventually build these heaters to then install in pre coiner homes
1: yeah so um i i had um uh first uh um One of our members here in Japan had gone out and bought a. um, I wrote down a note, and I'm trying to find the name of it. It's the, I think the bit chimney, right? Bit chimney, yeah. There it is, bit chimney, and is is currently using that in in you know in their home to to hash. But that I think that uses the is it the Loki board or is it both the new? Okay. That one only, yeah. That one only uses the Loki board. Yep. Yeah. So the idea is that, um, and and I'm I'm on your pivotalpleb.com site now. So I see you've got these for sale. So if 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 enthusiastic plebs want to, of course, they can buy these and use them for their own home mining operations. But I guess ideally, what you'd like to see is people who are thinking about maybe, well, maybe this is a business I could start, or you know, sort of entrepreneurs or people who might might scale this into some kind of business. They could potentially buy these parts and then create their own um, mining solution, right? Which then they could sell, a bit like the Bit Chimney yeah um yeah, to, absolutely. to induce.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, the, in the spirit of you know the, the, in the spirit of Bitcoin and, and decentralization like I the, the main goal here is to get as much hash decentralized as quick as possible. And the fastest way that I know how to do that is to use a network effects and get this out in as many nodes as possible. And so yeah I, you know you've got the bit chimney that was created by Avril at Altair Tech. Um, he went and just he saw this low keyboard and he said, hey, I've got these machines. I know how to build a Loki rig. I'm going to go design my own rig and I'll call it the Bit and I'll start selling it on my website. Or you got Sat Stacking Club who went and designed the Stealth Miner. Like, and that was the that was the original goal here was to have to just that that was my original intent in opening this technology up rather than just keeping it for myself and stuffing it in my own miners. I wanted to just make it available to get as much hash rate out as possible. And so it, mm. I, it's it's exciting for me to see you have these other creative plebs that have said, Hey, I can, and, and entrepreneurs that said, Hey, I can make a business out of this myself. And so they're going and like helping to lead the charge here and designing their own, their own rigs. Um, you know, there's some other, there's a lot of other people in this movement as well. There's a, there's a, uh, telegram channel called Loki plebs. I think we're, we're about 80, 85 members or so right now. And you just have people that are excited, to just build and tinker and learn and identify the best ways to build this space is so big there's so much white space and it's so big it's too much space to explore for any single person which is why i wanted to get it out and try to get more people tinkering and figuring out what the best configurations are and it's it's been awesome to see you know the bit chimney i would have never dreamt of doing the bit chimney that way or the the stealth miner that um, sat stack and pleb did i i would have never like that creativity i just wouldn't would have never um come up with that kind of build and so these guys are you know it's kind of the, the idea of, of decentralization and free markets, right? you just like get as much as many minds thinking on it and as many many perspectives as possible coming in and building in this space um, so yeah these these guys are out there doing that and i hope to see more and more people start to build out these units you know that they're, they're taking the the more traditional direct to consumer market where they're building the units and then selling them to other people um, but i do know that there are others that are looking at this from the same kind of energy arbitrage, distributing these miners into homes where someone builds the miner, they own the miner, and then they find a microhost to host the miner um, for them, and so now they have their own hyper decentralized network. So yeah, and that the the Loki, you know, the goal of the Loki is to enable that, and like I said, get get as much hash rate decentralized as quick as possible.
1: Makes sense. I had um, R- Rev Hoddle on the show. He's a f- friend of the show. He's um, in in the homesteading and permaculture um, space, if you like, and he puts um, out a really lot of really good content around that. But p- part of his setup is that he incorporates mining hashing into things like drying of foods. Yep, um, but the also soup, in- I believe yeah yeah exactly and but and he also modified a a dry a dryer clothes dryer yeah so that he's he's hashing as he's drying clothes so like the like i guess we're only limited here by the imagination of the of, of the plebs which is which would, you know so there's, there's there's a lot there's a lot that i think we, we're gonna see um but i guess like if for me just talking very in an abstract sense i suppose but you know, my my imagination says that in the future we'll see pretty much every device should have some kind of Bitcoin hashing incorporated into it if if the Bitcoin hypo- Bitcoinization thesis plays out, right? So, because the incentives just make sense. It's like I, I could have an air conditioner. I could have a clothes dryer. I could have a microwave. I don't know. Um, which generate sats or does not generate sats. And and it it feels like I don't think there's really any downside other than uh, the cost of manufacturing, obviously, to incorporate the hashing board. But once we've got, you know, we've got the kind of flywheel there, right? And you've got the early enthusiasts um, who will drive that early adoption, and then and then you would hope to get to a point with manufacturing scale that it would actually be a, a, a marginal, or, you know, sort of insignificant incremental cost to actually just incorporate these things into um, all all manner of devices, and, and then that would then you know um, create this sort of virtuous cycle where eventually everything just had Bitcoin hashing incorporated into it. And is 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 that is that something that you see? Um, playing out i mean i guess it's kind of hard it's kind of hard to predict the future right but where, where do you i mean put it put you know taking the white pill here like what what's the wh- wh- where could this where could this go like what, where, what's the dream here
2: yeah i, I totally see that happening I, I see the downfall of nichrome wire which is the the wire that they use in most electrical heating elements right it's uh i i see that kind of going away i see propane burners going away and i i do see that eventually but i think that's um a somewhat distant future, and the reason why I think that is because the reason why I think that is because um you got to look at the half life of the chips right right now we're still kind of on that bleeding edge every we're, we're Moore's law is still alive and well um because we've got the you know every every nine to eighteen months we're we're getting significant improvements in efficiency um and so what ends up happening with those improvements and efficiencies, it makes the old chips, um, it makes the old chips less valuable, right? And so if you're going to spend the money to put these chips in an appliance or in a heating element, um, it's going to represent some additional, some costs added to that appliance. And then you have to do the math and, and figure out, like, can these chips at, can that added cost in building this appliance actually pay itself off before these chips become, you know, obsolete? And so we're not there yet, but I think we get there when we kind of start to bump up against the efficiency limits of the ASIC miners. And I, you know, it's kind of a fool's errand to predict, you know, what the efficiency will end up being, or or how how small our node processes can go. And I think right now we're down to three nanometer in in commercial miners, or in these industrial miners, and we're, there's a path to to two nanometer. Um, so efficiency will continue to improve. I don't know how much further it will, but eventually we'll, we'll hit the, you know, what will we'll hit the point of diminishing returns on efficiency to where now the half-life of, of a new chip is extended out multiple years um, rather than, you know, one one year most at most.
1: What well, what are we on now? Is it S21s? Right, for... S21s. Okay. So I, I know that the S19s were something like three times more efficient than the S9s. Is that right? So, so that's the order of magnitude, yeah, so the... right?
2: Yeah, that's right. The S nines, their kind of stock efficiency was 100 joules per terahash. The stock efficiencies on the S nineteens, the initial versions, was about 32 joules per terahash. So yeah, right there, around three times more efficient.
1: And is is the S twenty one? I guess it's slowing down a little bit, right? Is it is it is it three times more? Is it is it like twice the efficiency of the S nineteen? Or well,
2: what a lot of people don't realize is that um, there's a few generations between the S nineteen and the S twenty one. Right, there's oh. S19, S19J Pro. There's the S19Xp, or yeah, the S19Xp. Um, those are those are kind of like half generations, we'll call them. But yeah, the the S mm. the S21 um, is now about uh, is about twice as efficient as the. Okay. You're you're sitting at about 17, 18, maybe maybe 19. I can't remember the exact spec on that mm. Um, mm. versus 32 on the S19, right? But so we we, we jumped a few generations or or kind of mid generations. But yeah, it, it went from, you know, the nine to the 19 was three times, the 19 to the 21 is um, twice as efficient.
1: Do you expect there'll be a period when, um, so I guess that what's driving the mining industry today per my standing is industri- sort industrial, right? So you've got massive data centers full of miners, publicly traded miners, et cetera, and they'll be ordering thousands of miners um, per, per order. Um, and then as you say, as we get, in Moore's law kicks in and within a few years they have to replace those, you know, from S9s to S19s, from S19s to S21s potentially. So with the, I guess there's then going to be a business opportunity created for entrepreneurs to kind of buy those, that old hardware from the industrial miners and sort of, inc- and then maybe with lucky boards, etc., incorporate those into Pleb mining devices, right? Devices targeted at um, uh, plebs and, and home users. You, is that is that happening? Is that is that what the um, Bit Chimney uh, is uh, essentially? Is,
2: there there are a couple different configurations. So for those that want just like the bleeding edge, best efficiency, I guess really it depends on um, what you're paying for your power, right? So in the case where the energy arbitrage opportunity, where I'm placing this in a pre-coiner's home and I don't have to pay, they pay for the electricity and they're happy to do so because they're saving money every month, right? Because they because they went from propane to electricity. In that case where I'm not paying for the electric electricity, I don't have to con- be as concerned about efficiency. Um, or if you have an application that you would have been using the waste heat anyway, then you don't necessarily have to, you would have been, sorry, you would have been, um, not, not using, if you have an application where you need the heat and you would have been paying to power that heat source anyway. Then yeah, it, it, it makes total sense. Uh, you, you don't have to be as concerned about the efficiency. So in that case, yeah, you can go buy these old miners, these second, third generation miners from, um, you know, these, these large industrial, you can buy them for pennies on the dollar as they liquidate and, and upgrade to the newest miners. Um, but the key is you have, you know, it doesn't make sense to go buy an S9 and plug it in in your home and run it in the summertime. I mean, I, mm. I shouldn't say it doesn't make sense. I should say, I should cl- clarify that. It doesn't make economical sense. Now, obviously, there are other incentives, mm. um, depending on where you're at in the Bitcoin spectrum. But if you really want to get to the masses and you really want to hyper-decentralize, you, know, you, need, you need economic um, incentive on your side. And so it doesn't make economic sense to go and Plug in a bunch of S nines in pre coiners homes in the middle of the summer because they're not going to make they, they would have been better off just buying Bitcoin outright. They don't you know they're they're spending too much money um, powering that S nine. But if you have a use for that heat or you have a way a really low cost of power, then yeah, it totally makes sense to to go and scoop up those old miners from the big industrial miners for pennies on the dollar.
1: Yeah, I, I guess we'll see a period of that and. um Eventually, you would hope that it that there's enough of a business there, market there, that you would actually get specialised manufacture of, um, chips for these for, for that particular use, right? The the sort of home mining use. But I I'm also thinking, you know, rather than even selling to kind of plebs or or individuals directly in the homes, one incentive should be that you could go to a construction firm, right? Someone who was building houses or someone who was building even apartment blocks things like that right and you could say look you can incorporate A six into your heating systems within the building and generate sats and it should be a no-brainer to also to sell at that kind of scale right and so i'm, I'm expecting we'll see that too but i, yeah, I haven't and, seen and it again yet.
2: The, the further we get out on that um uh, i almost said flattening of the curve but that has some negative connotations <laughs> <laughs> as you as you reach that asymptote of um of chip Shift efficiency gains. The further and further we get out on that curve, um, the, I think the more and more opportunities like that you'll see open up. Right? Because mm. I mean, imagine had somebody had somebody um, built with, you know, S nines this year, mm. the amount of additional capital that would go into building a bigger complex and like you know drawing up all the designs and going through all the learning to get that installed, it's mm. a, at least at an, at a large scale, it would they'd have a really hard time recouping the upfront costs. And like I said, that's, that's okay. Like I know lots of plug miners are like, look, I know I'm losing money and it's okay because you know, and they have their reasons why they're okay losing money. And that's, that's great that their passion and their, their, their commitment Mm. to Bitcoin. That's great. But if you want that to scale, Mm. um, it's gotta make, you know, it's gotta make economic sense. And so I, I think, I think we get more and more cases that start to make economic sense as we, Kind of saturate or hit that that point of diminishing returns on chip chip efficiency.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, yeah, we have to be mindful of the incentives and separate the I- ideology from the you know practical realities. Um, I completely, completely agree on those points. Um, well, well, Zach, listen, I, I'm really appreciative of you coming on and spending time with us, sharing your knowledge with us today. It's been, it's been a fascinating discussion. I want to be respectful of your time here. Um, so perhaps, you know, I can, I can hand it over to you now just to just to give us your final thoughts, um, and also point the plebs listening into, in, in the direction of where, you know, they can follow you or where they can find out more.
2: Yeah, I think, um, you know, my, my, my call to action my final thoughts is a call to action to say you know get involved um, you know it's it's often easy to kind of get sucked in thinking about game theory and thinking that you know these things will just kind of sort themselves out and um, the reality is these things sort themselves out by passionate people getting involved and sorting them out um, and so I would just encourage anyone that that you know is in this space and passionate about this space like find a way find your niche find a way to get involved. Um, and, you know, hopefully that, that leads to helping to, to hyper-decentralize and, and move the mission forward. Uh, and yeah, people can find me um, at zbombs2z on Twitter or at zbomzz on Telegram.
1: Excellent, Zach. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, you bet.
0: And we thank you for listening to us today. You can find us on Twitter and Noster at Tokyo Citadel. You can find us on our main site, tokyocitadel.com. And please check out our guests that that you heard today, support us on the Fountain app with a thousand sat boost, or head on over to the site and hit us up with some love over there. Building sovereignty, privacy, and hope into the Tokyo Citadel. See you next time.